The sermon text this morning is from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Have you, uh, have you ever known anyone to have fallen away from the faith? That they've backed away, that they proclaimed and they believed in the truth of historic Christianity, but then they back away, they, they move away. You know, it's like a conversion and then a deconversion. So nobody's born a Christian, so you have to convert into Christianity, and then, and then they deconvert, they walk back. So in the past year or two, there was a notable preacher, writer, at a national level who, uh, who believed certain things about the Christian faith and preached them and and taught on them and wrote about them, and then, then he came out later and said, well, I don't believe those things anymore. You have a deep conversion. It might surprise you to know, actually, that this church was formed from a church uh, that, had, that had moved away from cardinal truths, such as the virgin birth, other, other key doctrines of the Christian faith. You know, when we talk about people that walk away or apostatize or back away from the faith, it causes a lot of nervousness in many of us, and it causes a lot of fear. I think that's what Paul was addressing in the letter at this point. You know, if you think about last week, he spoke about this, this time of great, he calls it rebellion, or really the word is apostasy, a falling away from the faith. And there's a man of lawlessness that's going to come and what he's going to do is have with false signs and wonders, he's going to deceive many and, and kind of call them uh, to walk away from what they once believed. And our text is Paul saying to the church, stand firm, be steadfast. And what he's going to do is he's going to give us reasons why we can stand firm. He's going to give us some places upon which we can place our feet so that even though these winds of apostasy, growing rebellion against God, even though they begin to blow, our feet are going to be fixed, they're going to be firm. So he's going to encourage us this way. The three reasons that he gives, let me just give them to you ahead, is going to be the certainty of salvation. That we're going to look at these verses on the certainty of God's salvation. When God saves, God saves. When God chooses to move to save, it's going to save. But not just that, the certainty of God's word, the apostolic teaching in 15, that, that if you hold fast to that word, the winds may increase severely, you'll remain standing. And then the last one is the good character of God, the certain character of God, that he loves us and that he gives us eternal comfort and a good hope. So, so we want to look at the certainty of God's salvation uh, the firmness of God's word and the goodness of God's character. These three things, I think, will hold us fast and hold us fast good. So let's look first at the certainty of salvation. The question is, we have these people that fall away. 
How do we hold fast? How do we stand firm, as he says? Well, we, we have to know the certainty of salvation. Look at me at 13 and 14 for just a minute. I'm going to read these slowly. There is more theology packed into these two verses. It's incredible. James Denny, a former theologian of another century, said that this is like salvation, a theology of salvation in the miniature. Listen to these words. And just as a pastoral reminder to you, we can cruise through Scripture, and I'm telling you, you walk right over chunks of gold and diamonds and rubies when we just go blowing through it. Look with me at 13 and 14. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers. So Paul is holding these people in contrast to the ones who are deceived in the previous passage. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits or from the beginning to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lot there. Now, you wouldn't expect him to start out with the word of thanksgiving. He's just told us about the great rebellion and the man of lawlessness. You'd think we'd be tending to move towards fretting and worrying and concern. And what does he do? He moves right into giving thanks. He doesn't just give thanks. He says we ought to do it. We're bound to do it. We most earnestly ought to be giving thanks. Well, the question naturally is why? Well, because of the love of God, he says. The love of God is what makes our salvation certain. He, he says, beloved of God, he loves us. I want you to remember that. That's probably one of the harder doctrines in Scripture to grasp, not intellectually, but emotionally. We are beloved of God. Now, why is Paul so sure that God loves us? I mean, if you look at present circumstances, I don't feel real loved. We tend to think of the love of God being clear when we're in prosperous times or we're getting good health reports or when we're getting a raise at the office or we're moving forward in life or we have a new relationship. These are the things that seem to indicate the love that God has for his people. But not so to Paul. What evidences God's love for us is his election, that God chose us as the first fruits. Or God chose us from the beginning. Now, he says from the beginning, there's some question about the translation of that. Uh, most scholars go from the beginning. He chose us from the beginning to remind us that God's choice of us or election of us it wasn't based on anything that we had done or we would do, but it's based in eternity past outside of what we would do or what we have done. It's based on his sovereign mercy. He chose us from the beginning, notice, to be saved, to be saved. Again, in contrast to those who are being deceived, you can look at a world apostatizing, and you can give thanks, God, you chose me, you love me, which is evidenced in your choice of me, to be saved from the beginning. And when he says to be saved, he doesn't mean saved from the temporal issues of this life. Some he will, some he will not. But that you're saved from judgment. Standing before him as a guilty sinner. Uh, that you've been chosen, he's chosen you to be saved. That means that, that you're going to be made righteous. You're going to be forgiven. You're going to be adopted. You're going to be one of his children. This is God's choice of us. Now, when Paul was writing to these Thessalonians, he says, I know this about you. 
I know this about you. How would Paul have been so certain? Well, remember back in the first letter, in chapter 1, he spoke about how he knew they had been called. And notice that he links it to the love of God again. So back in chapter 1, in the first letter, he says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, there it is again, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So he saw them convicted by the preaching of the gospel. Then he says, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction and with much joy in the spirit. So even though the word was going out and they were suffering for it, they were still happy. We're forgiven, we're reconciled to God. Whatever this world brings to us, it's all right because we're now good with God. He says, and the word has gone forth from you everywhere. The report concerning us, the kind reception, he says, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. So he's seeing the fruit of God's election by they turned away from their idols to the living God. They repented and they believed. They were waiting for the son from heaven. Boy, how often do you wait? If you find yourself waiting and thinking about it, that's good, good evidence that you've been elect. You're longing for that time when he comes and makes all things right. So the first thing Paul's doing is we can stand firm because of the certainty of our salvation is rooted in God's election. But God's election was in the past, but notice that it takes place in the present. Look with me at the second half of 13, because he says that he has saved us, he chosen us to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So God's past election is meted out in the present through the work of the Spirit. The work of the Spirit is the one, this is called regeneration, where the Spirit of God opens your blind eyes to see yourself differently than you did. Most people, if you ask them how they're doing with God, I'm doing I'm much better than most of the people. But when the Spirit of God opens your eyes, you begin to see yourself in a new light. You see yourself in light of how God sees you. That we're sinners, we're arrogant, we're selfish. And we want to put ourselves first. We want to be God. We begin to see these things that we don't want to look at. This is the work of the Spirit, waking us up. And we also see the beauty of the gospel. Whereas the gospel was a fine story and everything, but now we begin to see it as life-giving, as a rescue for our souls. This is the work of the Spirit in bringing us from death to life. But sanctification by the Spirit is a process. The Spirit now enters and dwells within the person and begins changing them. That's what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3.18, that as we behold the Lord, that we are changed from one degree of glory to another, we are changed by the Spirit dwelling within us, leading us to become like Christ. This is the work of the Spirit in our lives. So God elects us in the past. He saves us and brings it to fruition in the present. And all of this is with the goal, look with me at 14, all of this is with the goal that we might obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Through faith in the gospel, we might obtain that glory. We might share in the glory. We talked about this back in chapter 1. This obtaining the glory of Christ it's more than our lives begin to reflect Christ. I think that's true. I think that the longer you are in the faith, the more you ought to resemble the Savior that you're following, no doubt. 
<clears throat> but there's something about radiating the glory. We're going to be transformed. It's not just uh, reflecting like a mirror, and the mirror doesn't change, if you remember that analogy, but we are changed. So think post-resurrection, existence of Christ. <clears throat> there's continuity with this life, but we're changed. We're made different. We're made like him. This is what, what C.S. Lewis talks about, that, you know, that we as immortal beings, we're either going to be immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. He's saying we're going to be in everlasting splendor because we're going to be like him. This is the certainty of salvation. This is how God is committed to take us and to choose us and to save us to bring us to glory. This is God's action. This is the triune God in the past, bring forth in the present, looking forward to the future. This is incredible. But for whom does it apply? Does it apply to you? Is this for you? Should you be certain of your salvation? Well, he tells us in here who benefits. It identifies those who are chosen. It says those who believed in the truth. Now, to believe in the truth, I, I would simply say, to believe in the truth is to believe in the truth of what God says. That God sees us and says to us that we need to repent and believe. That's the first thing Jesus said when he began his ministry. As the Son of God, he said, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. To believe in the truth is to believe in the truth that God does see us with love, but as sinners, separated, alienated. We stand apart from God. Every one of us does. And when our eyes are open to it, we repent. Repent means to change, to change your mind, to turn from those idols that we pursue. It's not the rock and the wood idols I'm talking about. All the other self-loves that we have, it's to turn from them and to turn to God and to see them now for what they are. They may be good, but they're not great, and they're not God, and so we don't want to follow them. So we turn to follow God. That's what repentance is. It, it, it's a... It's a confessing of our sins and our wayward ways. Even though they may have been moral and religious, they weren't Godward necessarily. But not just to repent, but to believe. We have to believe. We have to believe the truth that God has sent a Messiah to save, that God's goodness is on display through Christ. And so this idea of believing in the truth, just right there in 13, is to repent and believe. But you don't just do it once, and that's a confusing thing for many people. When I ask a person, if they are a Christian, generally they go back to a historical event, maybe five, maybe 15, maybe 50 years ago. Rarely is there that continuation of faith and repentance that's to be part of the Christian life. We do repent and believe, but I do that every day. We're called to repent of our sins and to believe again. And this is the difference with those who fall away. They don't keep doing that. See, the way that we know that we truly are elect and saved by this certain salvation is because we keep on. We persevere. This is a doctrine of perseverance, that God keeps moving. We keep repenting. We keep believing. To repent just means to, to really turn from sin and to believe is just to trust that we keep doing that. Getting up this morning, thank you for saving me. Forgive my behavior for yesterday, specifically and generally attitudes, actions, words, deeds. That's the evidence that we're pursuing on. You know, in 1 John 2.19, John says something very interesting. He says, he says that they left us. They, speaking about people that left the church, they left us because they didn't belong to us. He says, if they had belonged to us, they wouldn't have left us. 
But since they left us, they didn't belong to us. I mean, he says these three couplets. You know, he says the same thing three times. In other words, the evidence of truly standing firm is you persevere. It may not be pretty sometimes, but you come back and say, God, forgive me. I fell back into porn. God, forgive me. Fell back into anger and bitterness. God, please forgive me. I, I believe you're capable of saving me. I believe you love me. It, it's that repentance and faith through life that evidences that evidences you have been chosen by God, sanctified by the Spirit, and you are heading toward obtaining the glory of Christ. So how can we stand firm? Well, stand on the certainty of this salvation. I think this is what caused Paul to rest in salvation. That's why Paul's giving thanks. He's resting in what God has done. And when you think about how we have often heard the gospel explained, well, just ask Jesus in your heart and you'll be saved. And while I can appreciate that as a means of approaching God, isn't this salvation a bit bigger? God from eternity past chose us, and through the power of his own Holy Spirit, he has brought us to faith and is changing us also that we'll participate in the glory of the Son. I mean, to boil that down to ask Jesus in your heart is like taking a pebble and holding it to the rock of Gibraltar. I mean, there's no comparison. This is a rich, full-bodied salvation. This is incredible. And what makes it so certain, I would argue, is election. Now, election, I know, causes pans to rattle, and we get nervous over election. I think it's the truth to give you rest. You know, this election, you know, before time began, as I said, it's to take it out of the human context, and it's to put it into the sovereign pleasure of God. Now, everybody believes in election, so if you're here and you're like, oh, no, we're going to go election again. Election is in the Bible. It is a biblical word that we have to deal with. The debate around election is not on whether it exists or not, but upon what is the basis of God's election. So is it based on foreseen faith, where God looks down the hall of time and he sees that Tom will believe, and so God elects him? So in effect, Tom is electing God, who will then elect Tom. Or is it based on sovereign pleasure, that God is just merciful and kind, and he's going to display it for the whole world to see forever, by electing Tom, even though he doesn't come close to deserving it, or ever could. Now, if you think it's always been on foreseen faith, this makes God look a little more democratic, a little more, a little more fair. If you look at it that way, that will provide you no certainty. Because if he looks down the halls at Tom, and Tom's elected him, so now he'll elect Tom, Tom's flip-flopped on a thousand issues. And I can flip-flop on that issue as well, if it was up to me because I'm willy-nilly on many things. That does not give any sort of security of salvation. What it does is it causes concern, because now I've got to keep on. Now I've got to keep doing it. If I don't do it, I'm not going to get it. And then at the end of the day, salvation is sitting on these things right here. It's not sitting on God. can't be certain of it. But if I know that God has chosen me in his sovereign pleasure for his own purposes, and it wasn't anything I did or didn't do, I know it's secure in his choice, and his choice alone. So there's a rest that comes. N not a license to sin, because if you really know him, you don't want to walk in ways contrary to the one who's demonstrated such love to you. So Paul can rest. That's why he's rejoicing. That's why he's saying we're bound to give thanks. Look at how we can rest in this life. Hey, there's a sea of apostasy. We don't have to fear. We have no fear because it's in his sovereign pleasure that he's going to do it. But not only do we rest in it, we want to rejoice in it. 
We want to rejoice. I, I want you in this church to regain the wonder of what I just told you, that God has elected you, the Spirit has and is sanctifying you, and you will obtain. I want that to, to remind you of a sense of wonder. So many of us have heard this, and it's like, yeah, what next? And, and we've heard it, and that familiarity kind of breeds that contempt. And, and I want to say, sometimes I find this to be in men more than women. We tend to be less feeling and less excited about the nature of salvation, as if somehow being emotionally happy about obtaining glory of Christ is somehow unmanly. I, I, I want to, you know, and so I was reading this um, uh a blog, and I came across um, an essay by C.S. Lewis called Talking About Bicycles. And uh, it, it's in reference to, uh, to kind of regaining the wonder of God. And he draws it, he makes it analogous to riding a bicycle. So when you're a real young little child, uh, he talks about that you're unenchanted. You don't really know what a bicycle is, and you don't know what it can do. And so you're just unenchanted with it. But then the first time you learn to ride a bike, it, it's almost magical. You're going down the street, and, and, and you, you're moving fast, and you're not putting a lot of effort forth, and there's freedom to you, and you become enchanted with the bike. And, and any parent that's taught their child how to ride a bike, you know the smile on their face. They're so excited. They've got it. It's magical. But then you get older, and a bike's a bike and you become kind of unenchanted with it. There's a, there's a de-enchantment, he would say. Uh, that, that, yeah, it gets you here from here to there, but, but there isn't the same wonder over it anymore. But then you get older, and you have grandkids, and then you go ahead and get on the bike to show them how you can ride, and you feel the, the breeze in your hair again, and you're reminded of, wow, this really is a cool thing, and you get re-enchanted. That's what I want for us to be re-enchanted with the glory of the gospel, to be amazed that God from time past knew you by name and chose you. And he's given you his very own spirit to change you, to be like the sun. And then there'll be a day when you close your eyes in this life and you're going to open them in the next and you're going to be like him because you're going to see him as he is. This ought to just grab us, give us a wonder and an awe. That's what we're praying this morning. God, grab us with this. What a, what a tragedy to look upon just a field of diamonds and pass over it like it was just a bunch of stones worth nothing. So, so this will hold us fast. It will cause us to stand firm if we understand the certainty of our salvation. The second reason he gives us as to standing firm during times of apostasy and tribulation and difficulty is that we have the certainty of God's word. Look with me in 15. In 15, he says, So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. So Paul's saying, so then. So that's a good modifier for us. It reminds us, because your salvation is so certain, so, in, in light of that, stand firm. And that's what we're saying. Paul's telling them, he's encouraging them to stand firm. You don't need to worry and fret. You just need to stand firm. And, and how do we stand firm? By the way, that word stand firm kind of means it's like when your feet are, are just positioned 
strong and the winds are blowing, but you're not moving because your feet are on solid ground and you're not moving. So he's saying stand firm by holding fast, by tightly gripping these traditions. Now, what does this mean to, to hold fast to traditions? You know, Jesus criticized traditions in Matthew chapter 15. And when we think about traditions, we think about things that kind of crept into the church later. Like when did priests, when did they begin not marrying? And when did they begin wearing vestments and baptizing babies and the like? These traditions kind of crept into the church. That's not what we're speaking about here. The Greek word for tra traditions just simply means to pass on. Uh, all Paul is saying here is that the gospel, this certain salvation that I've just explained to you, that wasn't the invention of man. It wasn't by some imaginative person coming up with it. Paul's just saying, this is derivative. I, I passed on to you what was given to me. He says the very same thing in 1 Corinthians 15.3. What I received, I passed on. Paul isn't the originator of the gospel. It's not Paul's gospel. It's God's gospel. It's God's story. And the facts of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection, that's all God. God brought it forth. He brought it forth through Christ and through the apostles, and now we have them, the apostolic teachings. This is what we're going to, to hold fast on, to grip tightly, is these teachings. It's going to help us. It's going to help us stand firm when false truths come by and new ideas and new trends and new thoughts. It, 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 it helps us to stand firm when the intellectual assault about Christianity and the gospel and so forth come on, we hold fast to these teachings. Not as some scared, no, these are the truth. And I'm holding fast to these. So in every change in culture, the truth remains the same. It helps us in terms of suffering, persecution. We know that our suffering is only momentary. It's achieving for us an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs it all. We hold on to these truths. So whether it's intellectual assault or physical assault, this is what we hang on to. This is what we hold dear. This is what David Wells, a former professor of mine, said. He called it the apostolic succession. You know, generally, if you say apostolic succession, a Roman Catholic will explain that that's Peter passing on the popedom to another one and with each succeeding pope and how there is kind of a, a leader of the church, the pope, and it passes on from generation to generation. There was no apostolic succession is the apostolic teaching of the gospel that passes on from generation to generation to generation. That's what's happening here. See, holding fast to these traditions is what forms this to be a church. You know that our church is formed by the gospel. In other words, just as Jesus created the man and the woman and formed a community, so the word of Christ forms the church. That's why we call, that's why two times in our passage you see that we're called brothers and sisters with God as our Father. When we celebrate communion after this sermon, it's a family feast. It's a feast among covenant members. So the word of Christ, this apostolic tradition, is what forms a community, but it also strengthens a community. In other words, our communal learning, right now, each one of you in front of me, you're hearing me say the same thing. These same truths are hitting you, and they're fashioning your mind into being one with one another because we're hearing the same thing, and we're all adjusting and having our lives formed according to the word. Our church doesn't gather around political leanings. It doesn't gather around educational philosophies or social classes or culinary decisions. None of those, th those things are all temporal. 
our church is formed around the gospel. We're strengthened in it. That's why it's so important to be here on Sunday morning that we're hearing the same thing, the Spirit applying the truth to your souls. But not just that in Bible studies. You know, we have close to 150 people, men and women, all gathered around 1 Peter once a week. We're being changed. 150 of us. We're all reading the same thing. We're all learning the same thing. We're all growing in the same way, maybe at different speeds in different directions in different areas of life, but we're all being impacted by the same word at the same time, being changed. So, so we have to hold on. This is what maintains a firm fix against the winds of apostasy that we're all studying. You know, to try, and we're doing it collectively, to try to develop an intimacy with God apart from developing an intimacy with one another is a dangerous thing. God has so designed that our conformity to Christ is in the context of our community. This is what helps us remain fixed and firm as the winds of change come. So the apostolic teaching forms the community, it strengthens the community, and it protects the community. It protects us. The apostolic teachings are that plumb line by which we judge all other new idea, new thought, new trend. Forms a plumb line for that. Now, this is really important for us because we live in a digital age now. Right before, before the written word, it was all oral. It was altogether different. Things amped up when things weren't written and now digital. You have more being poured into your mind than you can even believe. So the average churchgoer probably has two hours, maybe one to two hours of theological truth put into their mind. But some of us are between 50 and 90 hours of digital information from podcasts, cable, cable news, social media, movie streaming. It's coming in at a tsunami rate. And there's a trickle of theological truth. This will leave you vulnerable. It'll leave you vulnerable. I've seen people in my, in my maturing years, I've seen people that dined very, very, very sparsely at the theological dinner table, and they are gorging themselves on the cultural. And some of the things you may be hearing, they may be true. I'm not doubting that. But they're dining at the cultural table, and 10, 20, 30 years, one man, I'm thinking in particular, 50 years, he was a man of the culture. He was still a moral man, but he was a man of the culture, thought like the culture. Well, of course he should, right, if you're eating at the table of culture. I'm not saying culture is wicked here. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just speaking about the disproportion of what's coming into our mind of theological truth and what's coming in our mind of political or cultural or entertainment or any other cultural offering it's going to be disproportional, and it's going to affect you. You know, so any, you know, sailing, I was raised sailing on the rivers. Rivers have tides, and whenever you'd stay overnight on a boat, you just didn't stop sailing. You had to throw an anchor. There's tides. They're pulling you in, or they're pulling you out. You move with the tides. If you had an anchor, the anchor gets into the earth, and a Danforth anchor at least has these things, and they stick in the sand, and you don't move. The tides may shift all over the place, but you're not moving. <clears throat> the boat stays where it is. We stand firm by holding on the apostolic truth. Otherwise, you're going to go with the direction of the culture. And again, it doesn't make you a monster. All, 
all the things that culture teaches us are not necessarily wicked or evil. That's not my point at all. My point is that what is the proportion of theological truth? Now, <clears throat> I'm sympathetic. Sometimes it's hard to read the Bible. It's difficult to understand. But, but even today, when you just look at those verses in 13 and 14, doesn't it, doesn't it cause you just to think, wow, there's a lot in there maybe I didn't see. Maybe I just need to read slower. Don't try to read the whole Bible through in a year. Read the same book 12 times if you want, every month. Just, we just need to change the proportion. I think that's what he's saying. To stand firm, we have to hold fast to the truth. If you're not reading in community, if you're not studying and worshiping in community, you're going to go, you're going you're to be pulled strongly in a cultural direction as opposed to a, a godly, eternal direction. Okay, the third truth that he gives us to stand firm, the third truth is the goodness of God's character. God's character is like a rock to us. Look with me at 16 and 17. These again, <clears throat> let, let, me, let me read one other verse. I, wanted to, I forgot to read this to you, but in Psalm 1 he says, uh, His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water and yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. That's a good reminder to holding fast to the apostolic teaching. Even in years of drought, even in years of apostasy, you will bear fruit. You will produce a crop, even in difficult times. Okay, so the third point is this good character of God. In 16 and 17, this is a simple benediction. Again, you could read right over it in probably two nanoseconds. He says, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope, through grace, may he comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. I mean, it's like he... he it's like John Owen. It's like these pregnant sentences of so much packed into them. What's Paul doing here? He's simply telling them his wish for them. He's simply telling them, this is how I'm praying for you. It's not actually a prayer that he's giving to God, but it is a prayer that he would give to God. Maybe he has given to God. And he's asking God for them to have these things. I hope this changes. When you hear Paul pray, I hope it adjusts the way you pray. Why does he move into prayer after telling them to stand fast? I think he's moving into prayer because he knows we need it. In other words, we don't have the power. You don't have the inner resolve to be able to stand fast against all the winds of apostasy apart from God's aid. He's reminding us, you do realize that dependence that finally coming to terms with, I can't, is leading you right into a life of prayer. You know, the kids used to ask me when they were learning to develop their own devotional lives, they say, how do you always keep praying? And I was like, well, I have to. I, I would be eaten for lunch. By lunch, I'd be eaten if I didn't pray. I don't have the resources necessary to sustain faithfulness. God has to help me. And so here he, he teaches us about the goodness of God, engendering us to come pray to him. And that's what Paul's doing. He knows let, the last thing we need are self-sufficient Christians. We need insufficient Christians. Christians who actually know their weaknesses so that they run to a loving father who has eternal comfort and good hope, and he wants to give these as gifts to his children who are hungry for them. That's what Paul does. So he begins to pray for them. 
Uh, so Paul's saying that we can stand firm when we understand the character of God, and that's what he goes to. Look, look at 16 when he says, Now may our Lord Jesus himself and God our Father. So we, this is interesting. Let me just stop here for a minute. Here you have, you have these two, right? You have our Lord Jesus and our Father God. But then when he uses the verbs in the rest of the sentence, to love and to give, they're singular. So Paul is seeing the Lord Jesus and God our Father to be one. Now this is only 20 years past the resurrection. A lot of theologians, at least at the universities, will tell you, well, the Trinity, that was a doctrine formed in the second century, maybe the third century. Not so. I mean, Paul's looking at Jesus and the Father as being one within 20 years of the resurrection, the first generation. They're seeing that that's important to know. But what I want you to see is why is Jesus first? Normally, God the Father will be first, but Jesus is first here. I, I, I think, or at least I'd submit to you, that I think he's just talking about the man of lawlessness and people were shaking. That's what it says in chapter 2, verse 2. They were shaking in alarm, this man of lawlessness. He goes, This isn't like a counterpart to him. You know, Jesus isn't like the opposing force, it's like two generals on two different armies. No, Jesus has the authority and the power of God the Father himself. There is no comparison. There is no battle to be had. A sword will come out of his mouth, man of lawlessness, destroyed. There's no battle. There's no second or third round. It's over and done. It's a one and done, very quickly. So Paul's saying, this is who Christ is. And then he moves into, so our Lord Jesus and God our Father, they gave us eternal comfort and good hope through the gospel, through the grace of the gospel. So in other words, when Paul is praying, when we are praying to remain fixed and firm, that's the type of God that we're coming to. He's a good God. He has given us eternal comfort, not a temporal comfort. What the world can offer you with with their hopes of whether political change or medical change or vaccines, they're all temporal hopes. Let's say they found the perfect vaccine that knocks it all out. Nobody will ever have it again. We're going to live forever? We're not going to have some other issue? Uh, life is filled with threat. We need an eternal comfort, and, and that eternal comfort is God himself. You know, do, do you realize we need this because of the world we live in? You know, we live in a post-Eden world. We live, that's why we studied Ecclesiastes. That's why we're going to be looking at Judges. This is the world we live in. It's a broken world. It's a shattered world. You know, in David, in Psalm 23, he says, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We think of that as something you read to a 98-year-old dying of cancer. Let's go to Psalm 23. It's for the old people who are going to die. They're in the valley of the shadow of death. Do you realize you're in the valley of the shadow of death? Do you realize your children are born into the valley of the shadow of death? We all live in the same valley, folks. It, it, it doesn't matter how old you are. We're all in the same valley. And the valley has death cast its shadow. As soon as life comes into this world, it enters the shadow of death. We're all dying. We need something more than what the world has for comfort. And that's why David says, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. For your rod and your staff, what do they do? They comfort me. God is a God of comfort. We run to him for comfort. You know, the, w when we think about God and, cons and consolation, you know, Charles Spurgeon said, there's music in the word. Like David's harp, it charms away a spirit of melancholy. 
There's music for God to console and to comfort us. He is the God of all comfort, he says in 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 1, 4. He's the God of all. Do you run to him for comfort? Because he gives us comfort in the worst of times. In these times of growing apostasy, go to him for comfort. So Jeff and June, I asked them if I could share this. Many of you know them, dear saints in this church forever. Uh, Jeff had a terrible fall, and he is still in Florida, still recovering. And uh, thank, by God's grace, he's, he is recovering. Um, but we're concerned for them. They've walked out faith remarkably well. And uh, so Carol wanted to encourage them. So a few weeks back, if you remember, I read that first question of the Heidelberg Catechism, right? I mean, it's like a home run every time you read it. And so she printed it up and she sent it to them and she wanted them to just read it and soak in it. And let me remind you of the question. I do this as much for me right now, you know, as much for you. I just love this. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own. I think it got choked up last time I read this. But belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins, and with his precious blood has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation, because I belong to him. Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. So she sent that to him. We would, they put it right on the wall. I want it right next to my bed. That's what I want. This is my only hope in life and death is that I belong to him and you belong to him. That's comfort. Let's ask God for that kind of comfort. Not just for comfort to help us stand fast through this, but to be active we're going to see this more next week when he calls about the word going to the world. But notice that he's going to establish every work and word. You don't have to fear that you're going to end up at the end of your life with nothing, with nothing, with a life that just... No, for the Christian, living for the glory of God, sacrificing and serving others, declaring the glory of God, he'll establish it. He'll make it fixed and firm. You don't have to worry about it eroding in time. It'll be made fixed and firm. So here we have this encouragement. How do we stand fast? Here's a man of lawlessness who's going to deceive many. How do we avoid that? How do we stand firm? Well, dwell on, wonder over the certainty of salvation. And then hold fast to the apostolic teaching. Don't let go of the scriptures. Make them the first thing you read. Read this good news before the daily news. And then, and then third, dwell on the character of God. Seek him for comfort. Pray for me. Pray for one another that, that we would enjoy this comfort and this establishment of our works and words. And we will be, we will be held fast. Because as we're holding fast, he's holding us fast. Let's pray for just a moment and then we're going to celebrate the table. Father, thank you for your word uh, that you promise us that we will not stumble and fall that not one of those given to the Son will be lost. Not one. Fixed and firm. But Father, only confirm to us that the fruit that we see in our life evidences that salvation taking root in our heart. That the election of God is evidenced in the transformation of the Spirit. 
which is evidenced in a, in a longing to obtain that glory. Oh God, make us hunger for that. Give us taste buds for that. Give us taste buds for his glory more than the glory of this world, the glory of the fanfare and the success that is offered to us. This is a, a world of vanity fair. Give us, give us a heartbeat for that glory that's imperishable, undefiled, that's kept in heaven for us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let me draw your minds, if I can, to the, to the table here uh, briefly. Uh, the table has... Um, it's very kind of the Lord to give us the table to celebrate on a regular basis. I want to remind you of one of the reasons that we may not think about the value of the table in the way that I hope to open your mind to it. The table, which we will have again post-COVID, uh, this table, though, helps us to persevere. It helps us to remain fixed and steadfast and firm. You say, well, how does it do it? Well, each month we celebrate this, right? Some churches every, every week. Some people in our church would like to do it every week. It would be a wonderful thing. But we celebrate it every month for certain reasons. But every month we celebrate the table. It gives us time to repent and have faith every month. In other words, the reason the table helps us to persevere in faith is because you're regularly being called to consider your sin, what you need to repent of the relationships that are still broken, the sin that you're still persisting in. Every month you're being challenged. Repent of your sins. Come to the table in a manner worthy of the gospel. You, you, you don't, you know, the warning in Hebrews chapter 3, it says confess your sins to one another, confess your sins to one another so that you're not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. People that aren't reminded to confess and to repent they begin to make peace with their sin. It becomes okay. It then becomes pleasurable. And before you know it, their lives are being defined by it. But not so for those that come every week to the table. This table is helping us. The celebration of the Lord's table helps us to persevere and to not apostatize. Because you're called to repent. But not just you're called to repent of your sins, reminding yourself of your, of your need for God, but you're also called to faith. Oh, when you look at the bread and the cup, there's an implicit question. Is, is he enough? I mean, is he enough to reconcile you to God? Is he enough to save you? Is his broken body and shed blood adequate to reconcile you to God? Do you believe it? So every month, you're being helped to persevere. You're being helped to stand firm. In fact, even when you don't come to the table, you're being helped. Let me explain what I mean by this. You know, when, when you don't come to the table, maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you're, you haven't weighed these things. Or maybe you are a Christian, but you're persisting in sin and you're persisting in broken relationships since you stand back from the table. You're being warned about the eternal ramifications of the decisions that you're making, either by not moving towards faith in Christ, that you're neglecting a mercy that's been offered to you, or if you're a Christian and you're not coming to the table because of persistent sin, and what you're doing is you're choosing to value the pursuit of that sin against the glory of the Savior. Seems like a foolish choice to make. So you're even helped in the time that you don't come because you're reminded of the weight of this. So there's much we have to be thankful for. Now Paul warns us in 1 Corinthians 11 to come and to take, to eat the bread and drink of the cup and it's 
men are worthy. So let's take a moment now and just confess our sins silently. So we, this is to repent, and then we're going to move to belief. And then I'll pray for us.